Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show is The Journey Through Sorrow, Mary Shelley's post-apocalyptic novel, The Last Man. We're listening to the title song from the Dave Holland Quartet 1972 album, Conference of the Birds. All of the music for today's program comes from this album. Just as so many of us know the story of Frankenstein's monster without having read the novel that birthed him, so too we know the story of Lionel Verney, the last man on earth. The fear of being left totally alone and in the sorrow of loss are powerfully depicted in Mary Shelley's 1826 novel, The Last Man. The Last Man is a futuristic story of tragic love and of the gradual extermination of the human race by plague. With intriguing portraits of Percy Bysshe Shelley and Lord Byron, the novel is said to offer a version of the future that expresses a reaction against romanticism and to demonstrate the failure of the imagination and of art to redeem the doomed characters. But that's not how today's guest reads this important book. Joining us via Skype is Eileen Hunt-Botting, a political theorist and professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame, whose work focuses on political thought from the 17th century to the present. She's the author of Mary Shelley and the Rights of the Child and of the forthcoming Artificial Life After Frankenstein, both from Penn Press. Shelley's The Last Man, and indeed even the life of Mary Shelley, might be read as a kind of version of the 12th century Persian epic The Conference of the Birds. In this poem, the birds are figures that represent human faults which prevent humanity from attaining enlightenment. Trapped in singular perspectives and individual versions of the truth, the birds cannot evolve. And so a perilous journey to seek wisdom must be undertaken. In the poem, there are seven valleys that must be crossed along the way in order to cast aside dogma and learn the inadequacies of worldly knowledge and desires. And in confronting, with sublime awe, the depths of human ignorance realize a kind of self-annihilation. This is the journey undertaken by Lionel Verney, the narrator of the novel and the titular Last Man. Verney is Mary Shelley, who, after the successive losses of three children and her husband, the poet Percy Shelley, who drowned in a sailing accident, must surely have felt as alone and lost as any last human. She was deeply depressed. Percy had written of this period in his notebook, my dearest Mary, wherefore hast thou gone, and left me in this dreary world alone? Thy form is here indeed, a lovely one, but thou art fled, gone down a dreary road, that leads to sorrow's most obscure abode. For thine own sake I cannot follow thee, do thou return for mine. When Mary's father, anarchist philosopher and novelist, William Godwin, learned of the news of the death of her daughter, Clara, he called her to Stoicism, writing in a letter that, it is only persons of a very ordinary sort that sink long under a calamity of this nature. And then when her son William died in June the very next year, Godwin urged her to accept her fate and return to work, insisting she was formed by nature to belong to those who can advance their whole species one or more degrees in the scale of perfectibility. We can class the last man as one of those works. And now, The Journey Through Sorrow, on Interchange, on WFHB.
there's a way in which I, I think uh, Mary Shelley was quite prescient in writing a novel about a global plague that appears to wipe out all but one person on Earth. Um, and because I think what she captured in writing uh, a novel with that storyline is the, the psychology of isolation uh, that we all feel when we're in the grips of a pandemic. So we are uh, obviously going to discuss Mary Shelley's novel, The Last Man, and uh, I think what she had called her Journal of Sorrow. And uh, But if you don't mind, let's start out a little bit with what I think our listeners probably already know. Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein. That may be the one fact everybody's pretty sure of. They'll maybe know it was begun as a kind of horror story writing competition between four friends. She was married to one of the great poets of the 19th century. Um, she was 18 at the time the story writing began and not yet married. But uh, it's kind of the lore of that particular book is as much is not just the book itself, which is, of course, well read and or at least well, well uh, seen. Uh, probably more people know Frankenstein without reading uh, the book than than they uh, than have read the book. What else should we know about Mary Shelley, or what am I missing that's uh, that we need to to know about her uh, her life and uh, her family, perhaps? In some sense, I think Mary Shelley's life really began after she wrote Frankenstein. It's unfortunate that most of the attention that we give to her life and work is to the time before she published perhaps the greatest novel in Gothic literature, at least in the, the modern era. Um, uh, because after she published Frankenstein at the age of 20 in uh, January of 1818, uh, that's when Mary Shelley's life grew really dark. Uh, before that point, she had known tragedy. She had known difficulty. Uh, the worst thing that had happened to her prior to publishing Frankenstein was the loss of her firstborn child. Uh, her, she was 16 when she became pregnant. Um, she was unmarried. And uh, perhaps because of various stresses in her life at that time, that first child was born uh, dramatically premature, about two months premature, and uh, died two weeks later. We don't know why the child died. It could have just simply been a function of its prematurity. That was the, the worst thing that happened to her. And it certainly was uh, a dark and terrible tragedy. But she persisted. She wrote Frankenstein. And then after the novel appeared in London bookstalls in January of 1818, she and Percy, her husband, um, at that point, uh, decided to move to Italy. And it was in Italy, even though Italy is one of the most beautiful places in the world, that Mary Shelley saw some of the darkest and most terrible times of her life. Two of her uh, children she bore died of malaria or fever um, when they were just toddlers. The second of these losses, the loss of her three-year-old son, William, really precipitated a kind of catatonic depression. And most scholars think that she, in some sense, only came out of that depression due to writing some of her darkest fiction, uh, including her novel Matilda, which was not published until the 20th century, in part due to its dark content. She used that novel to explore the theme of incest. And when her father, William Godwin, the anarchist philosopher, read it in draft, he refused to let her publish it because he thought it would only bring scandal to the family. Beyond losing two of her toddlers during this time period, uh, her Husband Percy had arranged for the adoption of a baby named Elena, but 
that baby too, a year later dies. She no doubt cared for that child, held that baby in her arms. And I can't imagine that the loss of that fourth baby did not affect her as much as the loss of the other three. And then right before Percy died uh, in 1822, Mary Shelley was pregnant again. And she had a late term miscarriage that was so bloody and painful that she nearly died. And Percy had the vision to call for ice to be delivered from a neighboring village. It was probably the only practical thing he did as a husband. And as a result of calling for the ice and submerging his wife in a tub of ice uh, upon its arrival at their home near the coast, she survived. And so interestingly, I think just about a month before Percy Shelley drowns off the coast of Tuscany, he saved his own wife from the grips of death. But that final victory was bittersweet because not only did they lose that last pregnancy, but Percy himself died young uh, just a few weeks later. And it was Percy's death that was almost unbearable for her. Losing him was to lose her creative partner, her, her imaginative and spiritual partner in life. And it was when uh, he had been dead for three months that she finally picked up her pen again and opened a new volume of her journals and named that journal the Journal of Sorrow. And it's in this journal that Mary Shelley begins to kind of lay out an existential philosophy of how to survive the worst that life can bring you. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is The Journey Through Sorrow, about Mary Shelley's post-apocalyptic novel, The Last Man, written in 1826 and set at the close of the 21st century. We're speaking with Eileen Bodding about the genesis of that novel in Mary's Journal of Sorrow, begun in October of 1822, the year of her husband's death. It's in writing in this journal, her darkest thoughts, on the cusp of suicide. Mary Shelley resolves to live. She resolves to live for the sake of her sole surviving son, Percy Florence, who was just a toddler at the time. Uh, And she resolves to live for the sake of cultivating her own imagination. And it's through that process of writing and cultivating the gift, the power of her imagination, that she begins to write the novel, The Last Man, which is her second great work of political science fiction. I think the the most important post-apocalyptic novel of the modern period. And as far as I know, the first major novel to imagine the near destruction of humanity through a global plague. You call this book a political science fiction. Can you explain that? Well, science fiction, in some ways, inherently political. Even though science fiction grapples with the impact of science and technology on probable futures of humanity. At the same time, it tends to understand science and technology as artifacts of human society and culture. So in some sense, science fiction is keenly aware of the ways that science and technology are political. Um, So one could say that all science fiction is political science fiction. I agree with this thesis, but I think that we should also acknowledge the ways that Mary Shelley did something distinctive in Frankenstein in The Last Man in creating a powerful new modern strand of science fiction that is decidedly political 
in its focus. I argue that her two great works are the works of political science fiction that have gone on to animate almost every story of man-made disaster since in um, novels and short stories and film and television and so on. Uh, and there are two, two major strains of modern political science fiction generated by Shelley's work. One strain are Frankenstein stories, you know, stories of, of scientists um, who use technology to alter human life in some way that rebounds against them and boomerangs back to haunt them in some disastrous way. And the other other kind of story that emerges from Mary Shelley's political science fiction are last man narratives. And last man narratives are, are those that we're familiar with due to the popularity of zombie apocalypse uh, films and, and television shows. And those narratives are about surviving some sort of man-made epidemic or pandemic that turns other people uh, into monsters or, or wipes out other people entirely. Both of these kinds of stories, Frankenstein stories and last man stories, are indebted to Mary Shelley's novels. And, and more deeply, they're indebted to her philosophical concern with the way that human beings are often the artificers of their own destruction. An interesting take in terms of her own life, I suppose, uh, to, because as you narrated it, I wouldn't have um, thought of her thinking of herself as creating that destructive path or bringing that sorrow down on herself. I think we can relate to Mary Shelley, especially as she writes in her Journal of Sorrow um, and, and uh, laments her past and wonders to what extent she is responsible for it. Hmm. At times, she feels like the victim of fate. At other times, she feels as though she is responsible for bringing this fate upon herself. And I think this is where Mary Shelley becomes interested in the philosophy of Spinoza, the most famous determinist of the of the early modern period. And although Spinoza argued that all things are caused, all things are part of a kind of cosmic causal chain, at the end of the day, we're free in the way that we look back and reflect upon our actions. And then in the way that we look forward on the basis of taking stock of those actions and make decisions about how we should act how we should respond emotionally to our situations, to our circumstances. And so Mary Shelley, while she was in Italy, was at work on a translation of Spinoza's theologico-political treatise uh, with her husband, Percy. And I think this experience of translating Spinoza was deeply influential upon her. She grappled with this problem of, to what extent are we responsible for our fates? Um, she agreed with Spinoza that, in some sense, we're all part of a causal chain on the other hand, she uh, agreed with him that we are ultimately responsible for our emotional reaction to that predicament we find ourselves in. And we at least have control over that. And so I think that's why she summoned up the courage to live and then to live in a way that responded creatively and imaginatively uh, to her own series of personal tragedies. She worked through those memories of loss and wrote what I think is one of the most interesting post-apocalyptic novels, uh, precisely because it imagines a, a kind of worst case scenario of loss. Everyone in the world is gone but you. <laughs> and yet, somehow, at the end of the novel, there's still hope. There's still reason to live. <laughs>
It's time for a break. This is Four Winds, off of Conference of the Birds, by the Dave Holland Quartet. Stay with us for more on Mary Shelley's enduring myth of the last man on Earth when Interchange returns. Back to Interchange on WFHB, we're talking with Eileen Hunt Bodding about Mary Shelley's novel, The Last Man, written in 1826, but set in the closing years of the 21st century. Some of the main characters in the novel are portraits of well-known literary figures such as Mary's husband, Percy Bysshe Shelley, and Lord Byron, two of the 19th century's greatest poets, and also two of its revolutionary personalities. And it's been said the novel expresses a reaction against the romanticism exemplified by those poets. Let's go ahead and and start then on the novel, The Last Man, and give a brief uh, summary, if you can, of of the action therein, uh, and I guess a few of the main characters, and then we'll we'll talk about it from there. Uh, Well, The Last Man has been read on multiple levels, like all great literature, it can be can be read in many ways. And one of the traditional readings uh, in literary criticism going all the way back to the late 19th century is to read it as a Ramona, Ramona Clough, to read it as a, a, basically a kind of allegorical reworking of Mary Shelley's own life history, especially the time when she was married to Percy Shelley. We can also read the novel politically. We can read it as a political engagement with early 19th century England and the ways in which radicals of the period, uh, such as Percy Shelley, um, were advocating for the realization of Republican uh, political ideas for the suffrage of the working class man and so on. And we can we can look at the novel as an exploration of whether such utopian political ideas can really pan out in practice. And over the course of the novel, we have characters who stand for Percy Shelley and Lord Byron engaged in politics in England and trying to 
come up with a political solution for the global plague and failing <laughs> over and over again. Uh, and we see over the course of the novel, the, 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 the Republic of England crumble altogether, leaving Verney, the character who stands for Mary Shelley, um, the last man on earth. And so many readers of The Last Man have thought that perhaps Mary Shelley was looking at the political utopianism of, say, her husband and, and asking whether it was realistic to have those goals, whether politics can really be the answer for the more grave and terrible problems of the human condition. I have a different reading of the novel. <laughs> um, I tend to read The Last Man as a, a kind of uh, perverse uh, um, novel of, of hope <laughs> in the face of disaster. Mm. Uh, uh, and there's there's a growing number of uh, literary critics who have um, advanced this reading over the past ten or fifteen years. So I, I'm not alone in in setting forth this this uh, kind of third school of thought, this kind of post-apocalyptic reading of the novel. So mm -hmm. rather than just reading it as a Ramana class, and, and or rather and, and and not making it an anti-enlightenment and anti-romantic or anti-utopian novel, a kind of anti political utopian um, ism. I think of it as a novel that's kind of advancing a kind of a kind of realism when it comes to politics. And I think the novel is interested in this question, how can not just states, but how can all of humanity respond to a global crisis like a pandemic? I mean, in some sense, I think what COVID-19 does for literary criticism on The Last Man is, is is to, to get us to ask, is this a novel literally about a global plague? Why? Yes, it is. <laughs> it is a novel about a global plague. And, and in that sense, there's no better novel for us to be reading right now, because right now, states such as the United States <laughs> are beginning to realize that we can't do this alone, that when you're grappling with something like a pandemic, um, national borders are no longer as relevant as they were prior to the pandemic. The, the virus, in some sense, does not recognize borders. Uh, for that reason, I think pandemic politics of the type that not Mary Shelley's novel engages uh, are those that ask us to think outside the box of national boundaries um, and to re-envision what politics mean under such dire circumstances. At the end of the day, we're humans. <laughs> and humans have a kind of collective global responsibility to one another. So we, when, when that illusion of the national border being the most salient dimension of politics kind of falls down, when that, when that illusion shatters, when the pandemic breaks that down, all of a sudden we're forced to confront our relationship to the whole and not just the human species, the whole world. So in some ways, I think what The Last Man gives us is a kind of radically cosmopolitan, post-apocalyptic vision of what it means to be responsible for the world itself. And again, we have to stress, I suppose, this is a futuristic novel in the sense that Mary Shelley um, gives it, uh, at, at least at the end, a 2100 date. This action is taking place sort of in the last decade of that century. But there's nothing futuristic about what's happening in this in this scenario i think there are uh maybe hot air balloons and verney who is uh, as you said the mary shelley character the last man is a last woman 
really. Um, but Verney is a shepherd. Well, I think what she was doing is she's reworking familiar biblical narratives. Um, Verney is a shepherd boy. Well, what does that remind you of? <laughs> right. It reminds me of the, the Christmas nativity. And at the end of the story, he goes off on a ship with his dog in search of other survivors. Well, what does that remind you of? Well, no one's heart. Another post-apocalyptic story. <laughs> That's true. We have many of them, unfortunately. We're, we're just trying to uh, make realities out of our fictions. That's right. That's right. Or, or the fictions help us to make sense of our reality. This is Interchange on WFHB. Today's show is about Mary Shelley's novel, The Last Man, a futuristic story of tragic love and of the gradual extermination of the human race by plague. Our guest, Eileen Hunt Bodding, a professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame, notes that the novel is generative of many last man stories that would follow. Mary Shelley was writing a modern myth. I think she did this in Frankenstein. Joyce Carol Oates pointed that out about that novel. Mm -hmm. I think she's doing the same thing in The Last Man. The Last Man is maybe going to surpass Frankenstein as the most important of our modern myth mm. as we enter the age of pandemics, when when they warn us in the papers every day that this will not be the last of the pandemics that right. we face in the coming years as we close in on the year 2100. Interestingly, as you point out, the year Mary Shelley dates the novel. This novel is radically futuristic because it dates itself to the late 21st century, when now we're grappling with this very problem of coping with man-made or or human-exacerbated pandemics. You had asked about the, the politics of the novel. For most of the novel, it's as though people are going about their lives, business as usual. That sound awfully familiar right now. <laughs> yeah. This morning, uh, you know, I read a news report that said that, uh, the United States um, had military intelligence that there was a pandemic coming from Wuhan. They had this they had this military intelligence back in November and nothing was done. So we continued business as usual. And as a result, we let a pandemic happen. And that's exactly what happens in this novel. And that's what makes it such a good read. The first half of the novel, I agree, is slow. But all pandemics have a slow burn. Mm. Right. They yeah. creep up on us. And then before we know it, we're overtaken. That is the narrative structure of The Last Man. Mm -hmm. The first half of this novel is a slow read, but the tension grows and grows. And it's in the second half of the novel when everyone starts falling down on the ground. The bodies start piling up, right? That's when it builds to this powerful existential conclusion where Verney um, is left alone in Rome, of all places. How poignant is that choice of setting now, um, as Italy is one of the epicenters of the COVID-19 crisis? Uh, Bernie has left the last man standing. And uh, where does he go at the end of the novel? He, he climbs to the top of St. Peter's Basilica, and he looks out upon the ancient city and all of its ruins, the ruins of human civilization. Um, and he makes a decision. He makes a decision to look for other people. He hypothesizes that someone somewhere must be out there. Uh, and he even thinks, well, maybe there'll be a man and a woman who have already started to renew the stock of humanity. And so getting back to the biblical mythological imagery of the novel and the way the novel functions as a new kind of modern myth of human survival, 
um, in the final frame of the novel, Bernie searches for a new Adam and Eve. Uh, and he, he, he goes out into the world with the hope that they must be out there. There's this kind of wonderful uh, confluence of, of three powerful biblical narratives of hope. The Christmas nativity um, with the shepherd boy boarding the Noah's Ark in search of a new Adam. Well, that's a, that's a nice way to look at it. The, um, the, the book, I guess, uh, does, does become powerful. It's, it is an interesting aspect of it as I was waiting for the, the shoe to fall, you know, so to speak, as you say, wait, you know, waiting for the, the pandemic to take place. Um, and for, you know, the, the actual book to happen in a sense, right? To, gain the reflection of, of what the last man is or to gain uh, a kind of insight into how people or how Shelley imagines people responding to it as it happens, imagining Adrian or the stand-in for Percy or, the, or Percy's ideals and how that person responds, uh, the stand-in for Lord Byron, who is, I think, Raymond um, and how he responds or his type might respond in this situation. I think those are pretty fascinating takes on, on this as well. So it, it is interesting how that is, you know, the aspect of, of things we try to understand. How, how can we, how can we imagine ourselves into these scenarios? How will we respond? You know, how, how will leaders respond? You know, Adrian in this book is not at all a leader, um, who becomes one, becomes the best one. Uh, in this, in the circumstance. Um, it's, it's pretty interesting in that sense, even before we get to the all alone contemplations of what it means to have civilization, to be in the civilized surroundings, the Western, you know, European cultural surroundings, trappings, but have them be something we have to question as to their value. Obviously, Shelley comes down uh, in, a, in a particular space about the value of culture, the value of civilization, the value of architecture, even for the last man. Yeah, that's right. That's right. There's this uh, wonderful vindication of of art at the end of the novel, the power of art. Uh, uh, you know, Verney, um, uh, when he ascends St. Peter's uh, and looks out on Rome, um, you know, what he sees is, uh, all the evidence of humanity's imagination over time uh, and the, the power of that imagination to bring uh, beauty uh, and goodness into the world. Uh, and that, that inspires him. Uh, and so he doesn't, uh, even as the whole world goes dark, you know, even as everyone dies of the plague around him, he doesn't lose hope in the power of art and human artifice to dig itself out of these uh, human-made disasters. It's time for another break. This is Interception, another from the Dave Holland Quartet, off of the 1972 album Conference of the Birds. When we return, how imagination turns sorrow into speculative fiction. Stay with us.
Welcome back. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is The Journey Through Sorrow, about Mary Shelley's 1826 novel, The Last Man, whose narrator, Lionel Verney, is a stand-in for the author, and is, in fact, author of the book, The Last Man. In this segment, we discuss how this novel might be read as a response to Percy Shelley's 1818 poem, Ozymandias, which reads in part, My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. point is obviously Mary Shelley's point for herself as the character Verney finds paper and, and pen uh, and sits down to craft this particular story um, in which uh, he has to imagine someone will be alive to read it at some point. That's right. He does. He does. And even though he leaves it behind on a, on a gravestone in Rome, uh, that in itself is an act of, of hope. Um, of, of faith. Uh, and I think that's another interesting element of the last man. It's implicit faith, uh, not only in humanity, but in the world itself, um, that life will go on. We may not understand how it will go on. We may, may not be here in this present forum to understand it, but life will go on. And I think that's something we can all appreciate right now. Uh, it can be a scary thought, but I think it's also one that Mary Shelley calls upon us to grapple with. No, agreed. And uh, it's uh, you know as we were talking about this before and, and thinking about your biblical stories, I I do uh, you know I'm able to call up the uh, how Melville ends Moby Dick with an epilogue from uh, the Book of Job, right? And I alone am escaped to tell thee. You know, so there's a clear parallel there from this man, uh, excuse me, the last man to to Moby Dick. Although I can't imagine uh, Melville would have been aware of it. Well, Melville definitely knew Frankenstein. Sure, he, yeah. Yeah, he bought a copy of Frankenstein in Europe, um, brought it back across the Atlantic, um, and, and, and presumably read it around the time he was writing Moby Dick. Mm -hmm. That's well established in the Melville scholarship. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the Last Man, I think he was aware of probably through Poe, because mm -hmm. Poe, um, uh, especially in his novel, Pym was, uh, influenced by the Last Man narrative. Uh, we think that Poe, um, would have been aware of The Last Man as it was uh, packaged and sold by his uh, publisher in Philadelphia, Carrie Blanchard and Lay, um, and sold alongside Frankenstein in 1833. And it was around that time, I believe, that he published the short story MS in a Bottle, mm -hmm. um, which most scholars think has a direct reference to Frankenstein in its final line. And there are a number of stories by Poe about um, about uh, being trapped alone <laughs> um, or uh, threatened by plague uh, uh, that that build on the themes of the last man, psychologically speaking. There's a strong consensus in the Poe scholarship that uh, that he was influenced both by Frankenstein as well as the last man and through the popularity of his work um, in American Gothic literature, 
other writers, um, such as Melville, would have been influenced as well. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it, this book was not uh, like reprinted or anything during this period, right? So, uh, and I think I read it wasn't reprinted until the 1960s. So, um, with Poe's popularity and this kind of story's popularity, uh, why wasn't this book sort of more available? It's a, that's a great question. I mean, there there was one at least one literary critic around 1890 who who wrote that um, you know he, who wrote of the sublime melancholy of the last man uh, and called for it to be issued in a new edition. Um, uh, so there was scholarly interest in the novel for sure. Uh, Frankenstein was so influential and so well known and obviously went through many editions as well. Uh, I think that's part of the story is that Frankenstein becomes so influential almost overnight, <laughs> not just in, in novels and so on, but but also in theater in the 19th century. In some sense, it doesn't give Mary Shelley's The Last Man a lot of space to move. You know, it gets crowded out. But the literary influence of The Last Man is there. It, it's palpable in Poe. It's it's it, it's palpable in H.G. Wells. It's palpable in Jules Verne. And it, through those three fathers of of modern political science fiction, I think Shelley's Last Man narrative just became part of the kind of the coding of modern science fiction um, in in this deep way. <laughs> This is Interchange. Our show is Mary Shelley's Journey Through Sorrow. And our guest is Eileen Hunt-Botting, a professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame. We've been talking about the way Shelley's novel, while generally unread and unknown, has exerted a powerful influence on our imaginations. You don't have to have read the novel to know the story. And that's what makes it identical, in some sense, to Frankenstein. Most people have not read Frankenstein, but as you opened up your comments, most people know the story of Frankenstein. And it's not just because of the films, because students today uh, don't really know the Boris Karloff films, right? Mm. He grew up with. Um, But they do know the story of Frankenstein, even if they've never read the novel. That's how deep the stories have been programmed into our culture. Um, And the same goes for Last Man Narratives. Um, In my book, Artificial Life After Frankenstein, which comes out later this year from University of Pennsylvania Press, I do a a brief history of the transmission of the Last Man narrative through culture. And and I do think it it primarily took off through Poe, then through Verne, H.G. Wells, and then into the early 20th century, it got picked up in film rather early. There's a there's a 1920 silent film that does a comic version of the Last Man narrative, uh, and then that became quite popular. Inspired other films, a novel, and then during the Cold War era, the Robert Matheson wrote I Am Legend, uh, which we know we know now mainly through its um, cinematic versions. But that story is uh, a riff on The Last Man, uh, a global man-made plague that originates in uh, a war, basically causes everyone to turn into vampires except one man, it seems, uh, and he's left alone to battle them. And so that film of The Last Man, 1964, starring Vincent Price, inspired 
virtually every zombie apocalypse movie after it. Mm-hmm. And so by the time you get to that point, Mary Shelley's The Last Man is, is effectively the, the kind of formal cause behind every zombie apocalypse movie or TV show ever made. Well, that's impressive. And you're right. Those are uh, two uh, abiding stories that we we tell ourselves over and over again Frankenstein in particular the um the idea of the, the 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 hubris of science i suppose the hubris of humanity in some sense is explored here as well um uh, the vulnerability of fleshly being is something that uh, that we have to confront in a world that has a the feeling of continuity to it, you know, the feeling of, of continuation, uh, as we can look on the pyramids and imagine, uh, history or pat the past and imagine, uh, people and as they go forward will have the pyramids to look at, right? And, and the idea of, you know, the, the, sh- the sheer impermanence of human life set aside these things that we imagine as permanent. It's a conflict, I suppose, in us. And I think for me, uh, I wanted to bring this up uh, to ask if there was some kind of uh, response or uh, a thinking uh, for Mary Shelley in terms of uh, Percy's Ozymandias, right? Which is a very short lyric that pretty much says, you know, as great as you are a humankind, as great as you are human leaders, as great as you are uh, to build things like the pyramid, they too will crumble. I think unlike Ozymandias, the last man, leaves us with a vision of the person beholding the statue, right? So in Ozymandias, the focus is on the statue, you know, that has kind of withered away through the wear and tear of the element. Um, Implicit is the beholding of the statue, right? The spectator of the statue. Um, uh, But I think what Mary Shelley does in The Last Man, and I suppose it's interesting to read the novel in some sense as a response to Ozymandias, um, is she gives the position, she privileges the position and the point of view of the spectator, right? So just as when Vernie finds a piece, finds a, a writer's desk in Rome when he's left alone after the pandemic, and he finds paper and pen to write with, he sits down and he writes his history of being the last man and leaves it behind. Well, why? Because he assumes there'll be a reader out there, right? And so in that sense, the novel privileges his standpoint as the beholder of the decay of human culture. But because it privileges his perspective, it ultimately assumes there will be someone there not only to behold, but to make a plan for the future, Mm -hmm. to bring back that which was worth preserving about our culture. So when we're on the brink of disaster, um, we have a way to go forward. It's time for a final break. This is Seesaw, the final cut on Dave Holland's Conference of the Birds. Stay with us for more on Mary Shelley's The Last Man and a depiction of an apocalyptic cult when Interchange returns. Thank you. 
Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. In this final segment of our show about Mary Shelley's The Last Man, the novel in which she explores her own sorrow and loss through a narrative about a global pandemic which wipes out everyone the narrator has known and loved. We'll explore the consolations of art as well as the misleading consolations of the religious cult that forms in the wake of the plague. I think I felt a little bit more um, ambivalent. Um, I felt the the novel might have some uh, ambiguity to it, in, in or her own sense of ambivalence towards uh, the the great works, in a sense. And and this I may have just been reading as we frequently do our our own perspective in, into the novel, of course. But in line with I think Ozymandias, the idea is that uh, it's the hubris that is destroyed. Right, it's the the presentation of greatness that's destroyed. What is what remains, as you as you point out, is the single viewer, the single reader, the single person, the last man who who has to recognize that life is that that life of relationship. You know, what is destroyed throughout the last man is relationship. Are the things that make life worth living? Uh, Verney's uh, wife Idris, you know, uh, losing his children, losing his wife, losing uh, a daughter. You know, drow- a drowning actually, which obviously echoes Percy's drowning. Um, what what happens is the need to go out and seek uh, another person, right? Another relation, not the greatness of art or. And I'm not saying art's not art is personal. I'm not trying to say that art isn't isn't what we're seeking, but rather to say the greatness, the presumed greatness of these civilizational structures, perhaps, is what's kind of contended against. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that. Uh, that's why she made Vernie a shepherd boy, a yeah. humble shepherd boy, right? Yeah. Uh, in some sense, what he allows us to see through his eyes as we identify with him and therefore also identify with Mary Shelley and her perspective on the world, uh, Vernie, the humble shepherd boy, allows us to see what really matters in life. The novel is quite poignant in our time of pandemic. As writers remind us every day, it's the simple things that, that come to mean the most during a time of national and international disaster. Um, you know, as bodies pile up in uh, morgues to the point that they have to use refrigerator trucks to um, hold the bodies um, and funerals are delayed uh, perhaps for months. I think we're all reminded every day um, what really matters. It's the simple things, the simple effects of our relationships and our ways of life that matter and are worth preserving. End of the day, Bernie does not stay in Rome. He doesn't pretend to be the Pope or the Emperor, right? <laughs> Let alone God. What does he do? He goes out and he looks for others. Right. And with his loyal pooch. With a loyal pooch as well. And a mutt to, to, to I mean, he's not even picky about who his companions are. Well, you know, it, uh, obviously the, the continuity there too is that it's actually a shepherd dog. That's right. He yeah. is. One of the things we haven't touched on, and we can we can close with this, I suppose, or, or you know, as we're getting long uh, in the hour, um, one of the things that comes up here and that is echoed also in many, many of these uh, post-apocalyptic fictions and presentations is the appearance of the cult the cultic behavior, right? Religion comes in uh, as a form of response to the pandemic. Most recently, I think uh, a book called Station Eleven uh, really had exactly the same plot function um, as Last Man, where a, a sort of rival a group of people led by a a prophet, 
uh, comes and contends for uh, resources and things of that nature. So that happens in The Last Man as well. What's uh, What was Shelley's view, Mary Shelley's view in particular of religion? Or, uh, I know Adrian says something in particular about you know, in his confrontation with the group, but it's, uh, they're down to like 300 people left in the world. <laughs> like half of them are in this cult and half of them are not. Yeah. I mean, I think Mary Shelley uses that part of the plot to explore the ways in which people's fears of apocalypse can drive them to do things that are actually against their own interests. Uh, and, um, and that this is a real political problem for human beings to grapple with this facet of our group psychology, where, where when we, when we enter into a state of panic about the end of the world, it can ironically drive us to accelerate <laughs> the pace towards that end, right? Rather than stave it off. And she uses the, um, uh, a kind of uh, kind of apocalyptic cult mentality to explore this problem, but it's not a problem that belongs only to religion. You know, I wouldn't want to read that section of the novel as solely being a kind of diatribe against religion itself, because mm-hmm. he was the daughter of an atheist for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Godwin, I think if Godwin had written the novel, I think we could read it in such a straightforward way. But since Mary Shelley wrote it and a lot of what she did as a writer was to rebel against her dad uh, in various ways and uh, in, in various, very, very interesting philosophical ways, I might add. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. We've been discussing Mary Shelley's post-apocalyptic novel, The Last Man, with University of Notre Dame political science professor Eileen Hunt Bodding. One of the themes explored by Shelley, according to Bodding, is the dangerous tendency toward apocalyptic despair, exemplified in the novel by a religious cult. I think it's more interesting to read that episode with the false prophet as is, is, is about this kind of tendency, this dangerous tendency towards apocalyptic despair. Why we must resist it um, and, and how we need to resist it. And how is it resisted? Well, it's, it's in part resisted through the power of reason. Adrian and Verney emerge as wholly rational public leaders and defenders of a, of a way of life that does not cave into fear and despair. Um, in the face of the prospect of the end of the world. Another reason why we might not want to read the um, this episode of the novel in purely religious terms is that there are, there are other dimensions of the novel that I, I read as, as highly spiritual. Um, and I think that, for example, when, when Vernie and his wife Idris are on her, are, are sitting on her deathbed, um, and they know that she's going to die of the plague, um, uh, she's in the final stages, as it were. And, um, and they, they, ha- they stay up late one night just talking about the meaning of life and, and what their relationship means. Um, what does it mean to love someone when you're on the brink of death, when you're on the brink, brink of losing that person? And um, they have a remarkably uh, spiritual conversation. Idris is um, perhaps a little more traditionally Christian in her views than than is Verney. Verney is more of a Spinozan, um, but they, they blend elements of, of Spinoza's thought um, with elements of, uh, of Christianity in coming up with a way of reconciling themselves to her inevitable death. And they, they, they agree that their love will go on, that no matter what, it doesn't matter who dies first. It does not matter. Their love will go on. There's an eternity to love. 
that persists beyond the grave. And, and I think this is something Mary Shelley grappled with in her Journal of Sorrow to bring us back to the beginning of our chat. After Percy died, she, there were many entries in her journal where she despaired of everything. Um, and yet she still felt like she could talk to Percy. And it's, there are times when you're reading her journal, you have to kind of do a double take and, and, and ask yourself, is she, is she actually talking to her dead husband? <laughs> and I have to say, as a, as a reader of these journals over many years now, I, I think I've come to the conclusion that she, she really in some sense believed that she was, mm. that, that her love for her husband was eternal. It did not matter if he was dead. She could still talk with him through the medium of writing, through the medium of her imagination. There's a really interesting debate in the literature to what extent she may have fallen in love with one of her female friends after Percy died. I find it really interesting that at the very time she's mourning um, Percy's death, she develops this very passionate attachment to her friend Jane. Um, and then she writes a novel, uh, a Ramona Cliff, in which she is the last man. I mean, she, she, she identifies psychologically with a man. One thing I wanted to go back to or just to say uh, quickly in terms of the religious uh, theme again and, and to, to agree with you, uh, um, it's made pretty clear in the novel that the uh, prophet or the leader is an opportunist, not a believer himself. So um, that it's a person who has, uh, according to our narrator, Verney, who has decided to try to live on in history as either the, you know, progenitor of the next phase of humanity or, you know, die trying, I suppose. So, you know, and so it's not so much about religion per se, but rather about, as you say, the, the ways in which we respond to these situations. That's right. And there are, there are other characters in the novel that, um, you know, uh, represent not the extremes of religious um, zealotry, but the extremes of scientific um, uh, um, kind of radicalism or um, scientific rigidity of belief. And so I think in some sense, I think what Mary Shelley does with the metaphor of the global plague is to use it as a symbol of that which cuts us all down to size. You know, at the end of the day, what a pandemic does is that it levels everyone. And, uh, and so um, no one is safe. This is poignant, you know, with, uh, the Prime Minister of Britain in the ICU, for example, um, we're getting our own strong reminders of the ways in which um, all of us are equal under the size of the play. That's our show. Our final selection from Dave Holland's Conference of the Birds is Now Here, Nowhere. Our thanks to Eileen Botting for joining us via Skype to discuss Mary Shelley's second great novel, The Last Man. Though lesser known as a novel, the story has become, like Frankenstein before it, a modern mythos. We might all take heed of its timely reflections on the failed priorities of human civilization. You can find more programs like this online at WFHB.org, as well as on iTunes and any of your favorite podcast apps. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Cade Young is executive producer. You're listening to WFHB, Bloomington's community radio station. Thanks for listening. ¶¶